You're listening to the Running in Production podcast, where developers and engineers talk about their tech stacks, lessons learned, and general tips from running web apps in production. Here's Nick and today's guest. Welcome to Running in Production. Today, I'm with Barton Ip, who is using Django in Python to build a CRM to help care for the elderly. Barton, welcome to the show. Thanks, Nick. Thanks for having me. Yeah, happy to have you on. So do you want to kick things off by introducing yourself and letting people know a little bit more about the app we're going to talk about today? Hey, so I'm Barton. Um, I'm the CTO of Daughterly Care. Um, we're an in-home care agency in Sydney, Australia. Um, we look at aged care a little differently. So instead of having a whole bunch of elderly living in a facility where the ratio of caregivers to the elderly people are really low, we actually tend to send carers into your own home so you can be cared for there. This raises really cool um, like problems we can solve with technology. Like we, we did a lot with scheduling. We did a lot with um, government compliance. We did a lot with um, the accounting side of things and kind of just communicating with the client about how their parents are going, anything they should know about, how the medications are going. So we've made a app in Django called MyCare Portal. It's a full CRM solution for our company. And what it does is it kind of combines all these different areas of um, the business that involve um, like rostering, accounting, all these separate areas into one app. And yeah, we're developing that right now. And we've run that in production for about a year now. And yeah, we're about to roll out um, our mobile app to our two to 300 carers. And yeah, that's going to um, automate a whole other bunch of processes like tracking how many kilometers they travel, the hours, the um, prompt for medication, all that kind of stuff. Very cool. Yeah, that mobile app seems like it would be a big difference, right? They can start inputting data right there at the home. Yeah, that's right. So the thing with um, the software that's available in this industry right now is that it's not very high tech. So there are some people who've come in with um, mobile apps and stuff like that, but um, there's no really fully integrated solution that flows the data from where you capture it out in the field to when you actually bill for it or even when you report to the government about it. Right. So you said we there a couple of times. Is there multiple people working on this app or are you only the sole developer on it? Um, so we've got about um, six developers working on it right now. We do contract a lot of work out just because um, we do think there are people who do specific tasks better than the than we can do. So for example, like UI UX design, um, like the actual coding of the front end, I think we, um, we contract another company in just because they're much better with the animations that are usually involved in that kind of thing. And they also make the components of the website um, like much more separate so that we can reuse them in the future. Right. Yeah, it gets kind of tricky when you, when you talk about things like that, right? It's like your end user is not someone who sits on Hacker News and like is super into tech. It's just, you know, some nurse or assist, you know, assistant employee or whatever who is, uh, you know, like a regular person out there, not a techie. So things need to be super easy to use, right? Yeah. So like we kind of focus on the back end stuff, like the um, business rules, all that kind of stuff in house. And then we really want like people who are really good at making um, like the the end user um, comfortable with the app kind of do that job. Yeah. So what motivated you to use Django and Python in the end? Are there some characteristics of the framework that just made it a great fit or was it like based on prior experience? Let us know. 
Yeah, so with Django, the reason we chose Django is that we just really like um, Python as a language. It's um, simple. There's there's like concrete rules of how certain things should be done. And Django really kind of like inherits from that. So Django, like they have very, like there's only really one way to do certain things. And we really like that because in some other frameworks, like we've um, got some PHP, XPHP developers on our team. We've got some um, XJava developers on our team that uh, use the Spring framework before. We kind of all just agreed that in PHP, like if you're not using Laravel, if you're not very experienced in it, it's very easy to write a lot of code that needs to be majorly refactored later. Um, with Spring, you've got all the um, pitfalls of Java where you're spending a lot of time kind of writing a lot of code that just holds your app together. Whereas with Python and Django, it's you've got very simple concepts you need to follow and you just do those over and over again. And that kind of builds out your app by itself. Like the whole um, forms, models, the way you can just like pull out all of your fields that are in a model and then just extract that out into an HTML form. It's super powerful compared to like, let's say like if you're just using vanilla PHP and you've got to kind of handle all of those interactions yourself. Basically, the reason we chose Django is because it's so, like the ethos behind it is um, very, very similar to the Python one. And yeah, makes makes development just really simple. Yeah, and very well put. So those developers on your team who are like ex-PHP developers, were they just learning Django on the job for this project? Or did they come at this with a bit of Django experience beforehand? So... With the other developers on our team, there were previous colleagues of mine. We've kind of worked together. And so I was also an XPHP developer and we've kind of come to this um, project and we're like, we've got green pastures, which doesn't really happen that often. And we know exactly what our scope is, which also doesn't really happen that often. And um, we've got like this company that, that wants to develop this software and is willing to invest the... Um, time and money that it takes to build good software into this project, which also really doesn't happen that often. So we wanted to start off with a good base. And so we really came at um, Django with not really much Django experience at all. So we started architecting the app when we, before we were really good at Django, but it didn't um, really affect the code quality that much. Like we had to refactor some things that we wrote at the beginning because the, assumpt the assumptions we made of how Django worked weren't quite right. But overall, the um, kind of experience we've got from building in Django is, is way different than if you were a brand new PHP dev and you've like written this whole application in PHP and then like the code that you've written at the beginning can't really be refactored out and it's got some, I don't know, SQL injection error or something like that. The like Django, I love how Django abstracts all the um, database stuff away from you so that even when you're learning, you don't have to worry that you're making um, massive, possibly like project breaking mistakes without knowing it. Yeah, that makes sense. And you're going to give me nightmares now, like making me think back to the PHP days of like 7,000 line PHP files with yeah. a little bit of SQL, a little bit of CSS, a little bit of JavaScript and a little bit of PHP mixed in. Yeah, that's right. And the and just like using the wrong function, like using MySQL escape string instead of MySQL real escape string to like 
like pre-process your strings and one of them is like completely insecure yeah fun times for sure so this django app do you have it broken up into like many different little django apps is it a monolithic app or is it microservices or somewhere in between mm, so we have it broken up into about um 40 to 60 apps what we've really like the kind of um, concept we've gone with is when we're describing an app in this django project and we're going this app needs to do this and it needs to do this we kind of break that and into a separate app because i think that really helped us um compartmentalize what each app is doing because when we first started like when you come from php you kind of go you're of the mentality that like you're converting business rules into code whereas what django encourages you to do is kind of write your um, web app as if it's a library that you're consuming yourself. So instead of encouraging kind of um, grouping the business rules together, like you're more grouping like models together and like similar functionality together. So if you've got an invoice, you've got an invoicing app that basically only deals with the methods that that invoice has instead of also dealing with other stuff like maybe who pays for them and um, like how it's being paid and stuff like that. Yeah, you can have like um, like much more clear separation of what all your apps do. Right, so it sounds like you're able to like model your domain, right, with the DDD, domain-driven design sort of? Yeah, much like much, it, it becomes much more separated than um, if you were writing in PHP and you were writing just like, oh, I need to write an invoicing function. And then you need to know everything from like who the client is to um, who the relative is paying, if they're getting any external funding, all that kind of stuff. It really encourages you to separate out all those stuff, not just into like like separate models, but into separate apps entirely. So that those apps can then be consumed by other parts of the app. And yeah, I think, yeah, it really helps drive that kind of good design. Right. So you mentioned that you have about 40 to 60 of these apps. You don't need to go through all of them, but do you want to rattle off maybe a couple of the cool ones that we might want to talk about? Yeah, 100%. So we've got um, apps that are like, well, when we talk about apps, it's like when you do like manage.py startup and each of those like is what I'm calling an app. So we've got an app that handles like all the client information, like, but just basic information. So kind of where they live um like date of birth just like identifying information then we've got an app that handles their medical information um we've got an app that runs off like that powers that um medical information that's like actual like a database of uh, medication a database of um, ailments that we can link into that app about that client and then we've got um scheduling we've got this scheduling algorithm that like figures out who the best fit for our care for our client is so if you're if the client's got like very high needs like they've got um like late-term dementia or they've got or they're not really mobile or they're not um continent we've got to pick a staff member who does have the ability to do that um to go to that client because some of our staff don't really have much experience with like let's say continents and you don't really want to send someone um, who doesn't really have experience with that into someone who's heavily incontinent because it'll just make the, it'll stress out both the client and the carer. So we've written an algorithm where we 
look at all of the attributes of the client and the carer, and then we combine them and kind of figure out who the best fit for that client is. And then we also look at the availability of the carer and then see where this service can fit in their calendar. And the thing with um, elderly carers, especially when we're sending like someone outside of the home into the client's home, we can't really like switch the times around a lot, especially with the elderly, because they get confused as to who's coming in if we kind of don't stick to the same time schedule. So we've also developed this algorithm that takes that into account and says that, you know, this client really doesn't want this time to be changed because they'll be confused or whatever. And the algorithm takes that into account and tries to like do this jigsaw puzzle and figure out which carer should go into that client. I think that's one of the cooler apps we've got. Yeah, very nice. So speaking of maybe like algorithms and things like that, I mean, are, are there some Python libraries that you use in this project that really help you figure, you know, the answers out to those questions? Or is this more like just homegrown algorithms that you guys wrote? Um, so with the um, rostering algorithm, we've used um, pandas and NumPy as kind of the base for it. So what we've realized with this algorithm is um, we originally um, wrote it as a homegrown algorithm that was just like a, like it basically just did it all in inside the Django classes. It just pulled out all the attributes and then like did all the calculations and then revealed that to the user. And we've kind of rewritten that since, since then because it wasn't really fast enough because we can't really cache too much in the app because... Like, the services change, the attributes change all the time. Like, some carers are getting experience on the same day we're looking for someone with a certain type of experience. So we can't cache that much. We're dealing with a lot of data because we're dealing with lots and lots of services. We're dealing with recurring calendar rules. We're dealing with, like, changes across things in time. Um, we're dealing with how much funding the, gov the government's giving us. We're dealing with how much funding the client's got to give us. Um, so we had this problem where the more these things changed, the slower our old algorithm ran. And we found like this really cool way of, um, speeding it up. And we realized that like what all of these, um, attributes were in like conceptually were actually just like a scoreboard, right? It's like a matrix. And then each value is a certain value. And like, the client has this matrix and then all of our care is also have this matrix. So it's like how close they are to the client, how, like how much availability they have, what training they have. You can lay this all out in a matrix. And then what's really, yeah. And what's really cool about this is that like NumPy and Pandas is like, they're really, really quick with doing matrix, like transformations and like just doing operations on matrices. Right. So how we kind of approach this problem with the rewrite is we end up just pulling out all of the data that could possibly ever be relevant in this calculation. And then we crush them all down into matrices and we build it into like, so the more attributes you have, the more dimensions your um, like matrices end up having. So we, we um, operate on about like one to 200 different attributes right now. I think we're about, in the high, like 170, 180 right now. And we end up with this huge, like 180 dimension matrix, right? 
of all of our cares and all of the attributes. And then how we find um, who is suitable for this client is we actually take the client's matrix and we use that to intersect the um, carers matrices. And then the way, like the equation that comes out when those two things intersect is actually the people who are the best fit for that client. So you can take that client's matrix and you can add a little bit of um, leeway to it. Say you can go, um, it's this value plus or minus five, or it's this value, but um, it doesn't have to be one or zero. Like one's preferred, but it's not bad if it's zero. And you can intersect that with the matrices. And then when you apply those rules, you get an equation out and that's actually all the surrounding points it picks up. Those are the people that are um, suitable for your client. Nice. Yeah, that sounds uh, way out of my wheelhouse. So you're speaking with someone here who barely, barely, barely passed high school math. I'm glad uh, you're developing the project. So that data, all those data points attributes, are they just saved in like a SQL database or something else? Um, so it's, yeah, it's mostly just in a um, Postgres database. We don't really use um, NoSQL stores for anything. We do um, log to like Amazon S3, but we don't really, um, like everything's just in a SQL database, yeah. Okay. Now you did mention that you do have, you know, some background work happening. Is that all being processed through Celery and Redis or something else? Yeah. So we basically um, use Celery for our entire, all of our asynchronous activities. So like if we're sending messages through channels, if we're doing like any type of asynchronous transaction, it all goes through Celery. The thing is with Celery is that not until the latest version, I think 4.4.2 did um, like the time zones work properly. So all of our servers are in Australian time. And when we deployed Celery to ECS, we found that Celery was defaulting to UTC time. So it means that when we scheduled any task that said like, oh, please run this like 1 p.m. every day, it was running it like millions and millions of times because it thinks it's it's missing um like the time every like every single time it runs like it thinks that the system time is utc time instead of actually like being utc time so we had that problem but they've since fixed it and yeah we've like we've loved celery ever since because we were even looking at moving to django q just because we're having so many problems like trying to get Celery to cooperate across time zones. Because um, for our app, we can't run our servers in UTC time because there's a lot of um, time zone calculations that happen inside the app that kind of presume that the server is running in our time zone. Yeah, so for Celery, um, yeah, we do use that for all of the asynchronous tasks. And then we've kind of split all of our tasks into different queues that are consumed by different workers on different ECS instances. And that's because like some of our tasks take, I don't know, maybe like five or 10 minutes to run, whereas other ones are relatively quick. And we've kind of split out our jobs by the estimated runtime, depending like which dictates which queue they go to. Ah, so you do want to go over maybe a couple of task examples that might take five or 10 minutes? Yeah, so we have to do... Um, a certain type of government reporting um, to the government every month because they give us a large amount of um, funding and we have to tell them how that funding is spent. 
And we've automated that process in um, this app, but collating all of that financial data usually takes um, at least five or 10 minutes because it's got to go through hundreds of thousands of transactions and kind of um, sort out each type, do a very uh, specific set of calculations, and then it's got to render that whole thing out into an Excel spreadsheet that um, is compatible with uh, the format the government's looking for. So that's one of our tasks that takes a long time to run. Um, we've also got a built-in um, like email sending service. So it's like we've built it uh, with Mandrill as the um, transactional email service. And we render out um, reports into PDFs and we render out emails and we send them through the Mandrill service. And those are some of our longer-ish running tasks. Like whereas each task instance takes maybe five or 10 seconds to complete. So those would go into kind of like a medium, um, like priority queue that can process tasks that don't take minutes to run, but they take seconds to run. And that helps us prioritize. Um, yeah, it helps us prioritize what tasks run. Right. And for some of those longer tasks that take a couple of minutes, have you ever run into a situation where it gets like, you know, 80% done, but then the worker gets restarted as, like part of a deploy process and then you have to like restart it. Like what happens in that scenario? Mm, so with our deploy process, um, we really, it, it really doesn't ever get interrupted in that way. So what we've done is we've configured our AWS code deploy to deploy a set of containers that have the new code on them. Cause most of our deploys, well, thanks to Django, most of our deploys are intercompatible with, with each other. So it means that you can run the previous version and the new version at the same time without too many issues. Um, if there is um, a breaking change, um, what we usually do is we do a manual um, cutover where we maybe do it at night when nothing's running and then we take down all the um, instances and then we bring up the, the ones we want to run. But in the case of when we're just doing a deploy and um, like during work hours, what we find is we have this um, handoff process where everyone who's kind of connected to the old instances stays connected till they refresh their sessions, at which point they're reconnected to the new one. And what happens is once the um, new Celery ECS instances are hydrated, we can we start diverting all of the um, Celery tasks to those instances. And purely the old um, celery workers are just finishing their backlog. And after they finish that backlog, they shut themselves down and everything's running on the new celery, um, instances. So I think it's a really, really clean way of doing a very seamless cutover and not having to worry about a task failing or, um, like a transaction not finishing because of like a deploy. Right. Yeah. That's a very cool setup. Have you ever, have you ever run into situations though, where maybe like for whatever reasons that one worker never got a chance to finish his backfill due to some bugs, I guess. And then it just stays in limbo kind of. Yeah. So we used to have that problem, but we kind of solved it by kind of thinking like if a worker can complete 80% of its work and then kind of fail and not finish that job. And then it sits there in limbo and we don't really know about it. It needs to be broken down into smaller tasks um, one example was our email sending, um, task that used to, um, just be one task and it would fire off emails synchronously 
and sometimes that task would fail and then we'd have to figure out where it got up to when it failed and then kind of rerun that task sans all the earlier stuff when we run when we ran into that architectural problem we went the reason that's failing is because all of those emails should be fired off as separate asynchronous tasks after we've restructured all of our tasks that do like basically in our view if you have a for loop in your task that for loop needs to be issuing new tasks not actually doing the work inside the loop and once we kind of like stuck with that architectural model we don't really run into issues where um a task half runs and then it fails because um the only tasks that really run for a long time are the reporting tasks where um the for loops aren't like actually doing like actions on objects they're more just kind of like restructuring the data so that it fits in a certain format if you will so for example the the government um report that we produce that really um like that 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 runs fine as a five to ten minute task because it's just doing a whole bunch of queries it's doing a whole bunch of data transformations and then it's and then it's storing a um, excel spreadsheet on s3 at the end of all of it so if that fails we kind of know because um oh yeah what what what, what we've also done is we've um created a mix-in for class-based tasks and what that does is it lets us send an email when a certain um exception happens so if like for example we're doing that report and then it doesn't run that mix-in can talk to channels which can then like itself send an email or it can just send a push notification to the user's session and let them know that that process failed but with long running tasks we'd only have like a couple yeah so we've got ways around that kind of thing nice yeah that was a good analogy about like if you have a for loop then the work it does should be in its own thing and like yeah Mm. yeah because like we kind of conceptually like we kind of conceptually had what Celery's place was kind of incorrect when we first wrote those tasks that were really long running and left you in a precarious spot when they failed. And once we kind of thought, um, like thought of Celery as just, it needs to be issuing smaller and smaller tasks, that if that one thing fails, you can easily reproduce it. Then like everything was like smooth sailing for us. Yep. So let's uh, switch gears a little bit here and talk about the architecture of how you have your app set up, like, is this using Django templates and mostly server rendered, or do you have an API backend with some JavaScript front end? Mm. So coming from a like PHP background, we started off with um, doing server rendered stuff, but we've since moved to a Vue.js based front end. And also, yeah, it's just powered by um, DRF, Django REST framework. And we use um, JSON web tokens to authenticate with the front end. And the front end's really separated from like our main code base. Because before, all of our code, front end and back end, was in the Django app. Now we've got a separate um, dedicated JavaScript app that is the front end. And we've got a separated, like dedicated Python back end for it. Nice. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. Out of everyone who has been on the show and use Django and they have some API back end, it's always back to the Django REST framework as like the only choice to pick if you're going to build an API backed app. Yeah, it's like the Django REST framework, it's it's beautiful. It, it it should just be part of the, like, it should just come as part of Django because the way that it interacts with 
Django and then the way that it copies kind of Django's patterns, like how they use the generic um, API views and then you can pick the mix-ins. It's very similar to the class-based views in Django. They've really done like a really, really good job in making the API transparent to people who code in Django. Like if you know Django, it takes you like seconds to figure out how Django REST framework works. And I think like, it's just a beautiful thing. Yeah, that's one advantage of like just having strong opinions, right? It's like, if you can only do it one way, then you don't have to think about like the eight other ways. That's right. It's like in, this is the one thing that made us pick Vue over React is because now we're so used to having those strong opinions and having the one way of doing things. React is like, you've got to piece together all these different things. Like you've got to piece together what state manager, like what state management you want to use. Like, are you going to use Redux or MobX? And like, how are you going to do your routing? How, like, what components are you going to use? And it's just, there's too many permutations of those packages to be able to find like good documentation on that. Because I think one of the things with Django that really, really makes it easy to um, go from zero to a hundred is that like the documentation is so consistent and the stack that everyone uses is so consistent. Like, like how you said, everyone uses Django REST framework. You can find someone with a similar stack who's encountered a similar problem to you and like a well-discussed kind of thread on Stack Overflow or something like that, or a colleague that you know who can offer some insight into that. Whereas like with React, if it doesn't have strong opinions, you are kind of left with like the very few people who use your exact stack. And we found that like, that was one of the things that stopped us from using React. And the same reason we chose Vue is because yeah, we're very, very um, accustomed to these strong opinions and Vue has that. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, that's a great uh, point about the documentation, right? If you're working with a tech stack where that where the docs aren't that consistent, all it really takes is one or two terms to be used in the wrong way if you're new to the framework. And like, mm. that's enough to like stop you dead in your tracks. That's right. It's like the, the barrier to entry for something like, let's say React is quite high because you have to understand how all these different like libraries kind of talk to each other before you fully understand the framework. And that's that just makes it very hard to write good code because with Django, you get like, if you're like, how do I make a thing run after my model is saved? You're like, oh, I've got signals. And like, that's the way you want to, like, unless you have a very specific circumstance where you need to override the save method. Like, that's the way to do it. And that's the only way to do it. That's that, That's just the beauty of Django is that you don't have to know the framework well to know that you've picked the right pattern for the problem you're trying to solve. Yeah, very good stuff. So going back to your front end with Vue here, do you have all of your assets managed with Webpack or something else? Um, We do have everything managed with Webpack because it's just the easiest way to um, like deal with a JavaScript project. Um, we write everything in the newest version of um, like ES script and it's just like, we have Babel that um, converts that into like normal JavaScript that can be consumed by any browser. So yeah, our, our entire front-end process is like basically Webpack and Babel. Nice. So going with this API backend view front-end, was this decision made knowing that, you know, maybe you would have a, a really, really important mobile app in the future or something else? Mm. So we did switch to an API because we knew that we had a mobile app coming. So um, we had everything in Django Forms. We had everything server-side rendered. 
and we were like, this isn't going to fly if we're going to have a mobile app because we need to kind of develop an API or we need to know that API works in-house before we can like put it on devices that we don't have control over. So I think one of the best management decisions we've made was to rewrite the entire UI and make it all like API based and Vue.js based because that gave us a taste of how to deal with um, Django REST framework, how to do all your like token authentications, all that kind of stuff before you actually had to do it in a in an environment that like you don't have um, detailed logging and you don't have the developer console and you're just going off what users are telling you is going wrong. So yeah, I think that move to the API was really powered by knowing that we have a mobile app down, down the road. Okay. So now going back to maybe your tech stack, you know, you mentioned you do have Postgres on the back end. Do you use anything else that we didn't talk about, like Nginx and Docker in development at least? Or? Yeah, so in development, um, we have we use Docker. On our deploys, we have Nginx. So our entire stack is um, very AWS-centric, so we use a lot of um, AWS services. So our app runs on ECS, um, which is Elastic Container Service, which basically lets us push a Docker image, and it just spins it up and runs it for us. Um, our backend is hosted... Um, on RDS, which is the um, relational database service, and that hosts our Postgres database. Um, we've got an elastic load balancer that deals with um, like proxying and balancing out all the traffic between all of our um, instances. And we log to CloudWatch. We use um, Firehose to kind of consume the logs from CloudWatch and then format them into like parquet blogs and then we chuck those into S3 and then we can query those with um, Amazon Athena. So yeah, like our entire tech stack is very AWS centric. Our dev um, environment is, um, we, we really love it because it's a set of Docker um, containers that is exactly the same as what production runs. And when our devs um, like are working on a new feature or um, like even whenever they want, they can just type one command and it clones the entire production environment, like containers, networking configuration, data, like everything you could possibly imagine. It clones all of that onto an EC2 instance and then spins up all of these containers within that EC2 instance as if it was running in production. So we don't have this like, it works on my machine kind of like issue because our development environment is literally one for one, exactly the same as our production environment. Wow. Yeah. That's taking it to the next level. Like Docker in itself, like if you're in that locally on, you know, Windows, Mac, Linux does a pretty good job at, you know, helping you against like, ah, it worked for me, but you know, didn't work for someone else, but you go the extra mile. And now it's like, well, everyone's dev box is like literally an EC2 instance running native Linux, like on the same platform where everything else is running. Exactly. And we have like, we know a lot of people kind of, um, they have a Docker image that their devs kind of can um, SSH into and then they like do all the dev there. But we don't like the idea that your Dart, like the Dart, the stuff you're working on is in a Docker image because you can literally just accidentally delete your image and then it's gone, right? It's just like, just having that kind of like, that risk there is not like good for us. So you can literally, how we've set it up is you develop on your, the repository sits on that development machine and all of the 
um, containers that support the app are all networked in, like, like we use all this, um, like really hardcore networking stuff to emulate Amazon's VPC. So it looks like you're in an Amazon VPC. It looks like all those services are networked in the way that, um, security groups would affect your access or like which subnet those things would sit on. And then it treats your EC2 instance as a, as like an instance that's accessing all those services, even though it's not. And like, yeah, we've like run into no problems with like Docker images. We've run into no, this works on my machine kind of issues. Yeah. And, and we think that's like really, really beautiful. That, that kind of setup. Yeah. Very cool. Now, when it comes to that setup though, does each developer, I mean, are they running some type of local Postgres database that like has the same version as RDS or do they actually have like their own individual RDS like dev DB? Okay, so it, it doesn't um, spawn uh, an RDS instance. It spawns a Docker instance that runs the same version of um, Postgres with the same configuration that um, RDS uses. So it spawns our database and then it clones that data from the production database. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. That's cool though. Every dev has their own isolated world then. No one's stepping on each other's toes by accidentally you know, connecting to the same database remotely. That's right. And it's like... It's so valuable that every dev has their own um, instance that's actually in the cloud because um, we can. That means we can push Docker images straight from like their dev instance, and it's it runs as fast as Amazon's network does. We don't have to worry about like does our office have enough like internet bandwidth to do a deploy or like stuff like that. It's all like contained within Amazon's ecosystem. Yeah, and like when you're testing a new algorithm or something and it just eats up all your RAM or something like that, like it doesn't affect the other devs, which is also super helpful. Yeah, I haven't thought about that. Like that is pretty cool in the case where it's like, if you just need a stronger box to do something, will you just spin up a better EC2 instance instead of like getting a new laptop or something like that? That's right. It's because like, um, like my experience, like we run MacBooks across the office. And my experience with the MacBooks is that like once you cook them, like once you do something very, very like intensive on them and they heat up a lot, they'd never run the same afterwards. The battery is a little bit weird. It has a shorter lifetime. Your your OS becomes a little bit jerky. So like we try as much as we can to not have any um, development stuff on the developer's actual local MacBook because everyone's got internet now. Like you can just hotspot your phone and have internet access at a cafe if you want to be out of the office or whatever. You have your full development environment, your full AWS like emulated environment, like wherever you want to be. And you've got the full like eight core 16 gig box wherever you want to be. Yeah, that's an amazing thing. But it was like making me laugh inside talking about like buying the super expensive, well, it doesn't need to be super expensive, but you know, like a tricked out MacBook Pro for like, 4,800 bucks and then it's like you just run a browser in it because it's like yeah. you spin up a Docker container and it like blows the battery up. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Because it's like what, like what we noticed before is we used to get like the tricked out MacBook Pros that were like 5,000 US dollars for the devs to run Docker on. And then we're just like, if you do that, you get two hours of battery life because Docker is constantly ravaging your CPU and it's eating up all your RAM. And, you, and then you use VS code, which is freaking chromium base and that eats up all your ram as well and then you end up getting like one hour of battery life out of your laptop whereas now if we're running all the docker in the cloud and you're sshing into it 
and like you're using VS code, that's basically just like a website, right? It's electron based. It's like you can now develop on your MacBook, like desktop class resources for as long as your battery wants to like, like you can spend a whole day on your laptop on one charge and be running intensive algorithms like as much as you want. Yep. Good stuff. So swinging back to your tech stack, you mentioned that you are using Nginx. You know, that's probably sitting in front of GUnicorn, I would imagine, or USG. Yeah, we don't. Yeah, we're using uh, UWSGI, yeah. Okay. So how do you have Nginx set up? Like, is it just being a reverse proxy or do you actually like serve static files through that as well? Mm. So with our um, Nginx, we used to serve static files off the same instances that the um, Django app was being served on but as the app got bigger that got less and less um viable because we kind of want to save that bandwidth for like actual app transactions so we've got a specialized um ecs instance that like is dedicated in serving um the static files and then all of the other instances just have nginx sitting there um with a socket to um uwsgi it basically just is a reverse proxy that just forwards the traffic through okay so by the way, what made you pick UWSGI instead of GUnicorn? Um, I think it was just the time we really, um, like at the time we did it, we didn't really know about GUnicorn and there was a lot of like documentation on UWSGI and we kind of just picked that because like our feeling is if there's two technologies that kind of do the same thing and we don't know which one's better and there's not much like discourse on which one is better, we picked the one with more documentation and like basically more threads on Stack Overflow about it because it's more like if we run into an issue, it's more likely that it's been solved rather than if we're using a newer um, technology, we might run into, we might be the first people to run into a certain type of issue. So that's why we picked that. Right. Yeah, that's definitely a good way to look at that. So going back to your AWS setup, was there any services that we may have missed? Like, are you using... The ACM one for your SSL certs, like what about Route 53? Do you manage all your DNS there? Yeah, so um, with Route 53, like we don't run our DNS through Route 53. We use Cloudflare purely because with Route 53, I found that like um, sometimes the records don't propagate correctly. So what it's really good for is if you have, it's how Amazon gives you these URLs like for your A record, and it doesn't work anywhere else except for Route 53. The issues we run into with um, Route 53 is like, when we have like services that need lots of um, different records depending on um, who's hitting the site. So Cloudflare can do that really well. Like what it can do is it can do conditional records. If your like IP is from a certain or certain area, it'll serve a different set of records than if it was like a separate, like from, from a different, from like another geographical area, right? We, we looked at Route 53 and when we tried to do the same thing, it didn't really work the same way that we wanted it to. Um, yeah, we, that's how we settled on Cloudflare. Um, with ACM, we do use ACM to do the SSL certificate for our load balances. But really the most um, interesting AWS service we've come across is Athena. And that's the, like, it's basically Hadoop but like you can run it whenever you want and you don't need to run an instance for it. And it like ingests pocket files, ingests JSON files, and it lets you, it gives you like an SQL front end that you can just query data out of. So all of our audit logs, like um, all of our 
API transactions, every single transaction is audited. Um, every interface transaction gets sent to an audit log so that like if a user reports a bug, we can find out what time that bug occurred and we can watch what um, actions were taken um, up until the bug happened, right? So we're querying out maybe like like maybe 10 or 15 megs of data for like a two to three minute span. And when we need to find a particular action that happens in that time, we can just write a really easy SQL query. And this is just trawling through hundreds of gigabytes of just like audit log data to find us that 10, 15 meg chunk to show us. Not having to run any infrastructure for that is just amazing. Like I cannot recommend Athena enough for people who are like trying to find something to store all their audit logs in. Like that's definitely the thing. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, I haven't used that one firsthand, but you're the second person now to bring that one up. Yeah. You know, you hear about it once, it's like, eh, hear about it twice. It's like, well, maybe maybe now's the time to take a look. Yeah, what'd the last person say about it? Oh, they loved it too. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's really cool because like what's awesome, like why it's got a lot of potential for Django users as well, right? Is that um, it's got a ODBC driver behind it. So you can literally... That you can connect Athena as a secondary database to your Django app and then use the, you can fork the ODBC, the PyODBC backend like we've done. You just need to tweak the timeouts a little bit because Athena takes a long time to run. You can now have models that represent what your audit lo logs look like in Django. And it's making queries on data that's stored in S3 and you're not running any like extra instances to make that happen. And I think that's just one of the coolest things. Yeah, very cool. Now, when it comes to Athena's UI, do they give you like like a decent web UI to look at all the results of this and like graphs and seeing things line up? Or is it just like text data dumped out to like a text area? It's so you can imagine it as kind of like if you've ever used MySQL Workbench or like any of those graphical SQL programs, like all you, all it gives you is it gives you like your tables on the side and it tells you what fields are in those tables, like what columns are in those tables. And then it gives you like a little area to um, construct your SQL query. And when you run it, it just tabulates all of the results um, down below. And then it also saves the results as a CSV to S3. And then you can put that um, CSV into like Python notebook or whatever, and then do your graphing from there. Oh, nice. So by the way, just uh, switching gears again here, we didn't get a chance to talk about this before, but how many nodes do you run on that ECS cluster? Mm. So that varies by load. So when there's no load, when it's like nighttime, when it's only our on-core stuff running, it runs, I think it only just runs one node for the web application because there's basically no traffic. Like we're getting 20 requests per second, if that. Um, it runs one Celery instance. It runs one static files instance like that's all when it's like low low times when it's high low times it spins up to however many it needs to survive and our instances are quad core like four cpu um 16 gig instances so we don't really hold back on the um like the resource side of things so each instance can handle hundreds of requests per second so it's all um like resource based the more RAM and CPU and with the more requests one instance is getting, the more it'll scale up the entire fleet. Right. Yeah. And that one instance too, you can probably run a couple instances of your app itself, right? The web app. That's right. Well, okay. So this is a conversation we've actually had quite free, um, quite recently. 
um, where we're talking about if we're going to run multiple instances of that app on this one ECS instance. The thing is, we've decided not to do that because it just compli complicates the um, setup a little bit. It's like if we know which node is running which app, for example, it's run, it's like spitting out 500 errors for some reason. We don't have to like um, worry about a lot of instances of that app causing that same problem. We just know that it's that one ECS instance that has that issue and we can just kill it. Yeah, so it's like we run one instance of the app on each instance and we like, we just scale up all of our ECS um, containers depending on load. Right. Well, your Python app must be pretty happy then if it's sitting in a, a mansion there at 16 gigs of RAM. Yeah, it's like we just give it more room than it really needs. Like we've never really seen it use all of the um, resources we give it. But it's just from experience, you want to give your web apps like a lot of headroom. Like you want to know how much RAM it'll use at peak times. And then you want to give it about 20 or 30% more than that. Because like you don't know when you're going to like your traffic's going to randomly spike and your auto scaling can't catch up in time. And you don't know when that one instance has to suddenly deal with a huge amount of like traffic. So that's kind of why, why we've done it that way. Hmm. Kind of sounds like maybe that happened to you in the past at one point or no? Yeah. So um, at a previous job, we've, we rolled out a, um, it was like a vehicle tracking app. Like it was a fleet management app. And what happened was the devices in those cars had a trigger on them to kind of, um, what do they call it? They, they reprovision themselves with the fleet management server every like, I think it was a hundred hours or something. So, so it was all staggered. Like those, cause those devices were installed at different times. They'd all reprovision at a different time. And the load was kind of separated, like spread out over the course of maybe like 12 hours over 31 days of the month. So you weren't getting that many requests. And then what happened was, um, someone pushed out a firmware update to the, like to the actual vehicle trackers. And what that did was it, reset the provisioning date to like date time now. So all of these vehicles were trying to reprovision themselves at the same time to the server. And like, no one knew why that was happening because no one kind of caught on that that firmware update was causing that. So every day at like a certain time during the day, like I think it was like 1.30 PM when everyone was at lunch, it would just crash the entire web app trying to like, like with all these vehicles trying to make all this, all these requests at the same time. Yeah, I, I know it's not, like, very likely to happen to us, but, I mean, like, the extra vCPU and the extra RAM doesn't cost that much more. And I think it's a very cheap insurance against, like, if that does happen. Yeah, no, that makes total sense. You can never be too safe. So, going back to maybe your deploy process, do you want to just walk us through what it's like to go from development to production? Like, if one of your developers or you is hacking away on the project, you know, now you want to just commit that, get it up there, and get it live. How does that work from beginning to end? Okay, so at the beginning, um, what happens is we sit down and discuss a feature. We go, this is what we want to develop. These are the deliverables we want to achieve. And then we kind of assign the devs to go do that. Um, what they then do is they create a branch of master and then they name it like feature slash whatever the feature is. And then they work on that um, feature for the two-week sprint or the four week double sprint, depending on how long it takes. After that's all done, they rebase their branch onto master and then the, they make a pull request on like that whole set of changes. And then we go through a review process where 
it's got to pass, well, firstly, it's got to pass all the tests. It's got to pass CI, and then it's got to also pass um, our linting test. Like, we, we do formatting with black, and it's got to be, like, properly formatted. And if it passes all those ch- tests, then um, you can request a review. And that review um, usually comes to me or one of the other senior devs, and they um, basically look through the code. They um, download it, they run it, um, just to see if it works, if it's user-friendly, if it's all good, we approve it. And then that gets um, staged and it gets ready to be merged into master. And then at that point, we kind of organize with the business, like when we're going to do the actual um, like deploy, what changes there are going to be, um, how the new functionality affects um, the staff's processes. If it's a big change, we organize meetings to train the staff. Um, after that's all done, we get the green light. We usually, if it's a large feature, we usually do it um, on a Friday night and we switch it over. And then you've got all your new functionality um, that's kind of running silently over the weekend. And then everyone comes in on Monday and then you've got the new version then. So yeah, that's basically our deploy process. Nice. So how often do you deploy? Like, is it once every week, every couple of days? Mm. So with the deploys, um, it depends on how many bug fixes we have. If we have really urgent bug fixes, then we deploy as soon as that bug fix is written. Um, if we have less urgent bug fixes, we usually deploy um, once maybe like a few of them have, acu- uh, have accumulated. So um, maybe every two or three days we do a minor version deploy. But with major features, we really um, only deploy when the business is ready for it. Okay. Now, going back to that process, you mentioned that you do have a CI service. Are you using the one that's provided by AWS or something else? Um, we actually use Travis CI for our CI service. Oh, interesting. Okay. Do you want to let us know what made you choose Travis over the others? Yep. So we chose Travis exactly the same reason as we chose um, like UWS CI over GUnicorn or um, like Django over anything else. It's that there's a lot of documentation. It's well supported by the community. It's used by a lot of open source projects. So any issues you could possibly run into, someone's already run into it, right? With AWS code deploy, it's still quite new. It's proprietary. Like if you only really use it, if you're very, very fond of the AWS stack, whereas we try to be, we use AWS where their services are good, but we try to use other services where they're better. Like if there's no 100% like like deal breaker reason to not use AWS, we'll try and use something else. Right. Yeah. Very well put. And that really makes such a difference too, right? It's like you not being patient zero when it comes to figuring out like bugs and weird things that happen with a service. Like, yeah, having a massive amount of people use it before you is like the best thing ever. That's right. Like sometimes it's like we're not using the cutting edge technology, but actually like when you're not just working on a hobby project when you're working on something that actually affects real people and um, like how much they get paid and their livelihood. Like it's something you can't really take chances on. And that's why we like often decide to use um, like older technologies in favor of like cutting edge ones. Yeah, no, that totally makes sense. And yeah, up until what GitHub Actions came out, it really was like Travis was used in pretty much every open source project I found on GitHub at least. That's right. And it's like, if you ever have, if you have like a specific case you want to like test and you don't know how to run it on Travis, 
I can bet you dollars to donuts that someone has done done it in some open source project out there. And you can just look at the Travis.yaml file and you can see exactly what they've done. Yeah, and nothing is better than looking at actual working code where it's like, not only can you see it, but you can see the results of it, you know? You have like the whole entire story there. Exactly. Yeah, so going back to your deploy process, uh, do you want to talk a little bit about managing secrets? Like how do you guys deal with API keys and email credentials, things like that? Mm. So all of our um, API keys, credential secrets, all, all of our um, like secret stuff, that's all stored in um, environment variables against our um, ECS um, task definition. That That's all stored encrypted in ECS and the actual repository contains no secrets. Like it doesn't contain not even our um, like SQL database password. It doesn't even contain the URLs of our Postgres cluster or our Redis cluster. That's all in environment variables. And once you run the Docker image on the on ECS, it'll pick up all of those environment variables and throw them into the um, Django settings. And then you've got like your full working system. Nice. Yeah, that is a sound setup for sure. So we've had these, um, like in a previous project, we've had one of the devs um, at a previous um, company, we've had one of the devs accidentally make the um, project repo public for like 10 minutes. And then it got scraped by Google and all of the like production SQL passwords, all the API keys and everything was sitting in the settings file. So if you went to like, if you Googled their repository name and then you click cached, you could actually see like all of their source code. And it was like ridiculous. Oh man. Yeah, that yeah. is an epic mistake, but it happens like that. That stuff really happens all the time. It really does. And and you're just like, I'm so glad that I wasn't the one who did that. Like, yeah, no, that reminds me of that one story from, I don't know, two years ago, maybe the GitLab one where someone managed to hose like the production database to some extent. It's like, definitely don't want to be that guy. Yeah, 100 percent. Like, man, we've got so many different service accounts on the production database because we just like we don't want one account to have all access. Like you have to log into one, you have to use one set of credentials to do an alter. You have to use another set of credentials to do a delete. And it's just like, we've made it so hard to like actually like nuke your production database. It's yeah, man, that, that gives me nightmares. <laughs> so do you have any, like what's the term on AWS for this? There's like a delete prevention. Like it becomes very, very hard to actually delete a database. Yeah, there's like termination prevention. I think that's on EC2 instances. I think that's on RDS as well. But yeah, termination prevention makes it basically like impossible to like turn off your instance. Right. Yeah. And then like for the deleting of the snapshots or whatever, I remember doing it once. It was like, I had to like click like 14 checkboxes and type delete me and hit okay. And like give them like access to like my social security number. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And it's like, and like the, I, I really love AWS for that because like the amount of times I've been on the ECS dashboard and I've just like absentmindedly clicked like delete cluster is like so many times and i was like if it didn't have that confirmation box that said like type the name of the cluster to delete it i literally would have just like gone delete yes and like just done it yeah it's so easy to happen especially yeah you get in that dev loop of just like iterating on something where it's like you just get so used to clicking stuff yeah exactly and you just like want to like you just want your deploy to like like run and it's just like the end of a 13 hour day and you're just like, you just want it to be on ECS and you just like, yeah, you just veg out a little bit. Yeah. So speaking about maybe like planning for disaster and unexpected events, like, I mean, you mentioned you have some pretty rigorous things in place to prevent 
you know, accidental deletion of the database, but do you also run like automated tasks to back it up and anything else maybe that needs to be backed up? Yeah, so we back up our repository to um, firstly locally and then so we like get it in a zip file and we store it on a hard drive in our office. Um, but we also back up our repo to um, AWS code commit, GitLab and Bitbucket every like 90 minutes or so. So that we've got like just so many redundant copies of our repo that if like, let's say GitHub were to implode one day and then just like not give you access to your repository, then like we'd still be able to access our code. Um, we do nightly snapshots of our production data. Um, we used to do it much more frequently. We used to do it um, four times a day. Then we went down to two times a day and now it's once a day. Just purely because we've got terabytes of production data and it's just not um, financially viable to do it that often anymore. Um, we used to do incremental backups. So we used to like um, only pull out the deltas, but then we found when you want to actually restore those backups, it takes so much longer than if you just had a full backup. So the opportunity cost of that amount of time that you have to spend restoring like a um, incremental backup versus the like actual cost of just storing that extra like one terabyte of data is like, it's, it's actually really worth it to just pay for that one terabyte data. Yeah, for sure. So uh, did you ever run into a situation where you did have to restore from a backup before? Well, luckily um, we didn't, but we do like, but we do test these things. So like we do pretend that like, um, like if we turned off the audio server, if we accidentally deleted it, like how would we come out of that situation? Like we kind of do these drills to kind of like when that situation actually happens, we know how to deal with it. So we have restored the, like we've, Basically, um, one time we did an exercise where like, what happens if our entire, like, what happens if like, we forget to pay the bill and AWS suspends our entire account? How do we get all of our stuff running again from like zero, right? And we did that oh, wow. process. Yeah. And we did that process and like, and we document that as part of our technical documentation because it's extremely important to be like, like if everything goes to complete, like nothing, how can we like come back from that situation? So yeah, while we were doing that process, the incremental restore was the slowest part of that process. So like if the restore didn't happen, like we could have gotten our environment back up from zero to fully working in about 45 minutes, right? Im importing that incremental data added like four to six hours on top of that. Cause like the way, cause when you do the incremental backups, it stores it as SQL files, right? So you've got to run your base one and then you've got to, it's like migrations. You've got to run your base one. Then you've got to run the one that comes before it, and the one that comes after it, and the one that comes after it. And then it's just like, you've got to run all of these SQL files, right? It's got to do all these changes on your table data. But then if you like, if you just have your full file, it's just got to run all those SQL commands once. And then like, and then you're sweet. So it went down from like six hours of restore time with an incremental backup with like, like the worst case incremental backup where the um like the synthetic full was like like seven to fourteen days old and you've got um maybe a hundred increments you need to apply to it. That took six hours down to like just restoring the full database took us maybe forty minutes. So it went down from like a full day of business downtime to maybe like two hours of business downtime, which is like worth so much more than that one terabyte of data costs us. Yeah, that's uh, remarkable. Not only that, 
you know, the difference between incremental and just doing it straight up from one, but also that you could recover from like an apocalyptic event in basically like an hour. Mm. And like, and the, like the beautiful thing is right, because like, we're all like ridiculously nerdy, like in, in like this project, like all the devs are, what we've done is like, we have all those like recovery scenarios, like pre-scripted in repositories. So we can pull the repository and we can run one shell script and it, it'll like, it does everything we figured out we need to do to rescue our production environment. If we don't have S3, like it's just a switch we can put in the shell script and we say like S3 is gone. If we've like lost our cluster configuration, we can say our configuration has gone. If we like, um, if our database cluster is corrupted for whatever reason, we can just say our database is gone. And we've got this just one script that like if you tell it what doesn't work it'll fix those parts and then like try and put it back together as best as it can very cool but i mean and correct me if i'm wrong here you didn't go all out here where like if all of aws is gone like you can't redeploy this on like google cloud in an hour could you uh not google cloud we can do it on uh, microsoft azure in about two and a half hours wow yeah that is amazing being able to hop for providers like that yeah, so we, do, we don't have all of the functionality if we move to different providers. So we like lose our audit logging functionality. We lose like, we lose a lot of like the periphery stuff that makes our development process a lot easier. But the actual like core of the web application that can be migrated to a different cloud provider in about two hours. So part of this automation process and these shell scripts, is this all homegrown stuff? Or do you use something like Terraform to set up all the resources? Oh, that's right. So um, it used to be all homegrown. So the stuff that we've vetted, the stuff that we've developed over the last um, 12 to 18 months doing this process, that was all homegrown um, shell scripts. We're now looking at moving to um, like Terraform and Chef and Ansible to kind of do all that for us. But the thing is that like with doing, with, with using all of those beautiful HashiCorp kind of um services there's more maintenance that comes with it whereas our shell script is like it's there it's like we don't have to change it if the api to um chef or vagrant or terraform whatever changes we have to kind of like move with that technology whereas the shell script is just like these are the direct aws like cli commands we have to call to make this happen and like for us it's like the shell script was fine but now because our stack's getting a lot more complex well, we are starting to work on a um, solution based around Terraform. Right. Yeah, no, shell scripting can go a really long ways, though. I mean, a lot of people kind of don't like shell scripts because, you know, you look at that and some of the syntax is like, the hell am I looking at? <laughs> but, uh... Oh, uh, yeah, like, how the how the if... Blo- it goes if and then phi. Like, that, that just, like, makes me, like, want to cry. Yeah, no, it is rough. But at the end of the day, it's like, you know... You can get a lot done with a couple of like glue scripts. Exactly. That's right. And then like, because we know the AWS CLI really well, we can basically just have like our shell script. All it really does is it, it's just shortcuts for like certain AWS command line commands where we go, you need to run this command, call this JSON file to spin up our ECS cluster. If someone's accidentally deleted that, um, this deploy failed. How do we like specify a commit? and have that commit be like pushed straight to ECS. And all of that is code we already had. Yeah, and, and just having it as a shortcut in a, in a shell script is actually fantastic. Yeah, now speaking of failures, we didn't get a chance to talk about this yet, but 
do you have any like alarms and alerting set up? Like if, if, you know, something goes astray, does someone get emailed? Hmm. So how we've solved that is, um, like we have a very tight into, like we, we've written our own notifications library and we have a very, very tight integration with, um, Django channels. So we've got a lot of real time monitoring and like the first kind of stage of our monitoring comes directly from the app. So if, um, a view suddenly, um, does something we don't expect, like it hits an assertion that we've put in the code that, um, it's not meant to hit. Like if we go, oh, start time of the service can't be greater than the end time, but somehow it is that at the app level will notify the developers on Slack. So that internally will send a request to the Slack API and send us a Slack message. Depending on what type of error it is, it'll also notify um, like the relevant user through through Django channels. Um, so it comes straight up on the like web app that something's gone wrong with something that they're managing. Um, the next level is like if um, there's some sort of um, issue that the app itself can't report to us, we use um, Sentry.io to capture exceptions. And we've got like, we've got a base exception class that is the is the class of exceptions that that get thrown if the app itself can't notify us because like the app itself is broken somehow so we have an alert set up in sentry that catches that type of exception and then sends an email to us when that exception gets hit um we've got cloudwatch alarms so if um lots of instances are becoming unhealthy for some reason we get notified of that. If they're using a lot of resources, we get notified of that. If we get a jump in traffic, we get notified of that um, through CloudWatch. And yeah, that's basically our approach because that covers all of the kind of um, three areas you're really worried about. So like the stuff that is like user state errors, then you've got like um, basic infrastructure errors. And then you've got like your like granddaddy, like your entire like AWS cluster is burning kind of errors. And like that, that really works well for us. Nice. Now, I mean, we've talked for a while here and you have some, and a really elaborate setup, right? It, it takes care of all sorts of disaster recovery and very scalable and like all these great services intermingled to create, you know, the infrastructure to run a really cool product on top of that. For someone who might be listening to this, you know, some of this might seem like, wow, I'm just the solo developer. Like I, I can't do all of that. Like, did it start off with all of this infrastructure or did you like grow into this over time? I think... Okay, so the infrastructure was never planned to be like this from the beginning. It kind of organically grew um, from like what we really needed the app to do. So like our development environment, like this project really did start off as like just like a one person project where I was a sole developer. I had some friends who like I had the colleagues who work there now um, just help out on the project, but not really um, do any heavy development. And we went, we did a lot of the um, original development just by like just purely by one person. We didn't have all of the AWS emulation and we didn't have all this elaborate setup back then. We were literally developing on one EC2 instance. And then like, once we were happy with it, like I would personally like just go to the production instance, clone the repository, restart Nginx manually. And that was our deploy process. There is a stage in your project where that's fine. If you're not um, like if you don't have the budget for it, where you, if you don't have the manpower for it, those solutions are completely fine. Like if you're listening to this and you're like, oh, I wish I had that kind of setup. Like you can do that, but you'll find that like, as your project grows, all of these like elaborate things you get are like incrementally added on. Like we didn't wake up one day and we get like full AWS, like emulation with all the network interfaces, like talking to each other as if they were on AWS. We engineered that because 
we ran into a problem on our developers ends where they were like this is working on my machine but it's not working production and we had to figure out why it wasn't enough to just like find a fix for it my belief is like you have to understand the underlying reason as to like why that problem occurred and for us it was because docker's networking that we set up had like certain differences to aws's networking it's not just enough to be able to say oh that this bug is um fixed on production i want to be able to recreate that bug on the develop on the developer's machine so that we can be 100% sure that like if anything like this happens in the future we can catch it that's why we copied the emulation of, like that's why we did the emulation of the um aws network is so that we had that factor that plays a role in our app um readily available on every dev's machine the thing is like if you're in a project where you don't have a need for um like all of this stuff to make it to make it kind of obvious that it's working then having just an ec2 instance that you can pull the repo and then just restart nginx that's fine that's so fine what you'll find is that like as your project grows the stuff like this that you really need that will like change your life and make your development process so much easier that's stuff that all organically happens and i think like you shouldn't be like kind of going oh this guy's got um you know docker he's got this kind of setup like your setup should grow organically from how your project is growing organically you you like nine out of ten times you will not need to emulate the aws network but it's like if you do do it because your project needs it not because like someone else has done it and i think like that ethos is like when you want to make something like cool like this i think that ethos is very very important to keep in mind that like if you're doing something because it's cool what's going to happen is you're going to do it and you're going to be like man that's like that's really cool like i'm so glad i did that and then you're not going to maintain it because it's not an integral part of your app and then it just becomes tech debt that you have to worry about down the track whereas like if you're developing stuff like if you're doing certain things for your development environment that are like crucial because like a certain bug like cuz it catches a bug for you you will maintain that because like if you don't something will break in your app and then it'll be very obvious why because like this part is maintained and then you just maintain that part and then you suddenly have like a stack like a dev stack that is so salient so boiled down to the core things you need it to test it's easy to maintain and it's it is cool and it is elaborate because it fits your use case so well so yeah like the the tldr version of that is while all the stuff we're doing is like super cool the way you can have something that's super cool for your project is that like just let it grow organically figure out what the important things are that you need to do to not only fix the bug but reproduce the bug and how much value that brings to your project. Yeah, that is very 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 well put. So, I guess like the takeaway for listeners out there, it's like none of this stuff prevented you from deploying your app initially. Right? You had the one EC2 instance set up. You didn't wait around like going crazy trying to implement all this from day one. Yeah, we really just started with the bare bones kind of um environment and it's like you don't need all this stuff to be able to develop apps. You just need like your laptop and that's it. Nice. So what would you say some of your best tips and lessons learned are from building this app? Mm, I think some of the best tips 
Mm, I think the the one thing that I can offer as like, um, like my words of wisdom for like aspiring software developers or like developers that are like, um, already like in a major project is that like one of the biggest things that held me back at the beginning of like my software engineering career is like this like idea that because I've put so much time into doing something one way, I've got to keep doing it this way. I think it's called the sunk cost fallacy where you're like, I spent so much time doing this already. I can't not keep doing it. Some of the best code that like I've personally ever written is stuff that I've rewritten like five or six times because I've done it one way and it's taken me a week. But one part of it is like just very hacky. And it's like, you know that in the future, it's going to take you a lot of time to maintain and a lot of effort to maintain. It's worth putting in way more effort in the present and like just doing it properly, pushing out something that's hacky and then having unforeseen things happen in the future. Like we we go with the extreme programming testing pyramid thing, right? We have like very, very good test coverage. We have um, lots of unit tests. We have some integration tests. We've got end-to-end tests that test like the unit test test every permutation of this function and like every single possible logic path that it could hit. Our integration tests test that like all the major functionality is working on end-to-end tests, make sure the buttons work. All of this put together is ensuring that like, not only that your app works, right? There's like one thing that like, even the best test can't ascertain is in 10 months, if future you had to maintain this, right? Would you look at this code and go, I have no idea what this is doing. Or would you look and then be like, oh, right, this calls this. And then this does this. Like you should be writing code that like, if you can imagine your future you looking at it and going like, I've got no idea what this does. It needs to be rewritten in the present. Because let me tell you, when you're 10 months ahead and like a billion other things have happened, you've worked on like a billion other features, you've worked on different bugs, like the landscape of the app has changed, like how all of the models interact with each other has changed. Like you're going to wish that you wrote it in a way that you could just read it and just be like, yeah, this works. And like, even though your tests, like you have your tests there to like tell you that it works, right? You want to be able to know on a human level that like, this is how all these things interact with each other. The one lesson I've learned from like my entire software development career is that there are times when I've like, this is hacky, but it works and I've pushed it. And there are times when I've gone, this is hacky and it works, but I'm going to rewrite it. And there's like, there's code from both of those scenarios in production right now, like running at this very second. But I can just say a hundred percent that every time I look at code that I've written and like looked at and went, mm, this isn't right. And I've rewritten it and I've had to maintain that code. It's taken me exponentially less time than it takes to maintain code that I've just like written in like spaghetti fashion. And I've got like no idea what it does. So, I mean like the extra maybe two, three days you'll have to put into like rewriting this functionality. Like if, if you do what we do, we do test driven development. So we write all the tests first. So it makes refactoring really, really easy. It's like, you already know what your functionality should do. You have all these tests that like bolster you when you're trying to do this rewrite. You should just spend that extra time, do that rewrite, make it pretty. And then, and then like you'll thank yourself in the future. But this is also coming from a place where like I have a lot of control in the management of the project. Like we can, we can move around our deadlines to fit in with this kind of refactoring. If you're on a very tight budget and a very tight um, deadline, this might not work for you. It depends on what type of project you're working on, 
what type of client you've got, what type of like management is behind this. But in the ideal world, being able to spend the extra time in the present is worth so much more than like the time it's going to take you to like figure out like the time you save from not doing that. And then the time it's going to take you to like maintain that future in the future. Yeah. That's very well put. And on the same way, like I love the idea of writing garbage spaghetti code, but actually see it work like in the browser, everything is good. And then immediately go and refactor it after I know that, okay, I nailed out what needs to actually happen to make this work. Now it's time to make it a little bit better. That's right. And it's just like, if you've written your test properly, like, if you if your tests are telling you that it works, right, you can refactor it as much as you want, as long as your tests aren't too tied to implementation, which they shouldn't be. But yeah, just like refactoring it in the present is so important. Yeah, in a weird way, like, you know, I like solving the initial problem with the spaghetti code, but I really enjoy the process of refactoring that in a couple of steps just to make it actually something I can read a couple of days later. Yeah, exactly. And it's like, like everyone loves spaghetti code because it's just like, it's, it's your stream of consciousness, right? It's how you've solved the problem. And you're just like, literally, like putting your thought process into code. And you're just going, yep, like, this is how I've thought about this problem. And like, this is how this like, this is going to be kind of thing. But refactoring it is like, after you figured out what your thought process is, it's like thinking about it again and thinking about what are the like constituent parts of this problem and how do I solve these in an elegant way that makes it really easy for like future me to develop, like to debug this. And like the more you do this process, the less you just tend to eject your stream of consciousness into a .py file and then run it. And the more you're likely to just subconsciously re refine these problems into like salient points before you actually write code. And I think like the more you refactor, the better you get at writing code, like for the first time. Yeah, for sure. Totally agreed. So Barton, thanks a lot for coming on the Running in Production podcast. It was very great having you on. No worries, Nick. Same with me. Yeah. So before we wrap this up, do you want to share any links to your site, Twitter, GitHub profile, anything like that? Yeah, no worries. So our um, actual software development company is called Initialize Labs. Um, you can find us at initialize.io. You can spell it with an S or a Z, depending on where you're from. Um, but yeah, um, check out our site. Uh, we do do a little bit of freelance work in Australia. Um, but yeah, we're, we're, we're glad to see you there soon. Cool. And on that note, to everyone listening, thanks for tuning in, and I'll see you in the next one. You've been listening to the Running In Production podcast. You can find a full archive of the show at runninginproduction.com. Also, don't forget to subscribe using your favorite podcast player or leave a review if you like the show.